Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Warden. My guest today is Gus Chu, who is the first Chinese national to become a master of wine. Welcome to the podcast. Um, do you feel part of a ready-made community of the Masters of Wine based in China? Uh, thank you, Monty. So if you just talk about the title Master of Wine, I don't think there's a community because we do different things. Each person is specialized in different areas. But if you talk about wine education in China, we do have a Master of Wine for wine education community because most of us are doing wine education over here. WCT education and all these kind of qualifications are very popular nowadays in China. Okay, so who are the other masters of wine in, in China that are doing uh, helping with the educational side? Yeah, so those are my bosses, Fengyi Walker MW, Edward Rack MW, and also Julian Boulard, who is French but speaks better Chinese than I do. <laughs> and there are, I think, Cassidy Dart uh, from South Africa, he is also based in here, but because of COVID, he traveled back and forth. I think recently he just got back. Did you grow up in a wine region? Uh, no, in China back then, <laughs> there, there well, Shandong province is supposedly to be a wine region, but they didn't really define any area for wine production back then. So only recently, uh, I was in the recent Eight to ten years, we had Ningxia as a wine region, uh, Hulan Mountain as a wine region, and that's about it. And more sort of the province-wide uh, places became like this kind of regional concept, like Yunnan, where LVMH uh, uh, established their winery, and Xinjiang, the whole province is known for its grape uh, table grape production and wine production. Okay, so I was going to ask you about that. I mean, in terms of Table grapes is one thing, but what sort of wine grape varieties are popular? Uh, of course, Cabernet Sauvignon, because that's the only grape that most consumers know in China, so they have to grow it. <laughs> so why, I mean, is it sort of a catch-22? If, if you only grow Cabernet, people are only going to think about Cabernet and like Cabernet, but what do you think in the future will be varieties that might work, and would any of those be Italian native varieties, do you think? Yeah, to be honest, uh, from viticultural point of view, the sensible grapes to grow are native Chinese species, such as Vitis amaranthus, and also certain crossings that are cold resistant. And I'm not even talking about those kind of Riesling or Müller Turgau, those kind of cold resistant. I'm talking about resisting cold, dry, and windy conditions in most places in China. I'm in Beijing now. It is pretty cold outside, but the bigger problem is super dry and quite windy. And the grapes with Vitis vinifera genes, they simply cannot survive those kind of winters. So we have to bury vines under earth in wintertime. So in terms of survival and the happiness of the varieties, I wouldn't suggest any <laughs> vinifera. But nowadays, people are experimenting varieties such as uh, Marcelin and Ayanto, those kind of grapes, and they achieve certain uh, success in terms of flavor profile. 
but still there are lots of costs and damage due to the environment environmental factors in China. Has there been a push for genetically modified vines in the in China from, say, outside actors, say, from the US. Um, it's, you know, in a technology that we, we find. Um, GMO vines in China, would that work, do you think? Um, that won't work because it's multi-gene controlled. So it's pretty hard for, at the moment if you look at multi-gene controlled uh, uh, properties, attributes uh, of wine, such as cold resistant. It's almost impossible to do... Um, uh, GMO, those kind of technology at the moment. Uh, hybrid crossings makes more sense. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your your career um, as, a, as a student. Um, you've done quite a lot of um, academic research for your Master of Science degree at UC Davis in California and uh, obviously your Master of Wine dissertation. How do these um, forms of research differ? Yeah, so... <laughs> The UC Davis curriculum and the research are definitely very rigorous. But to be honest, I am a very cl- clumsy person. <laughs> I broke all the flasks. I drop all these kind of expensive equipment. So what I found I was good at was doing more reviews. So I did a review paper with Dr. Andrew Waterhouse on the wine pigments, the red wine pigments. And for my Master of Wine uh, research paper, it's more about those kind of sensory studies, which didn't require those kind of uh, fancy lab equipments, but it's more about using wine glasses, using humans, human sensory to get results and do certain analysis and interpretations. So mostly, uh, I think I am more good at those kind of interpretation of data and review things rather than doing actual hands-on work <laughs> in the lab. Okay. I mean, is that, is that paying you an income, that particular work, or are you just doing that voluntarily? Or is that part of a, a, a science um, study? Uh, not really. So my income mainly came from wine education. So WCT, those kind of wine qualification education side. Okay. So when you're teaching, who is coming to your um, teaching classes? Yes, yeah, so I joined Dragon Phoenix, uh, the Chinese company I work for, uh, in 2010. And back then in China, no, almost nobody knows about wine education. And the people who came to our class are mostly uh, those expats who are at a higher level of a wine importing company. But then when I left the company, company temporarily in 2015 for UC Davis, our student base became huge. And on our waiting list, there are hundreds of people trying to learn level two, level three, or even diploma WCT. I have no idea what happened, but maybe Chinese people, we love qualifications. We love to pass exams. And people want to pursue lifestyle if they have decent income. And economical development uh, back then was really good. And now we still have a a very, how to say, vibrant market for the wine education side. So we see students not only coming from the wine trade, but we see more students are consumers, wine lovers, and of course, more females than males. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, what, what sort of age group are we talking? Are we talking about people that are 30 years plus that have, you know, the careers and they can afford to pay for the classes or are they 18-year-olds that are really keen to, you know, have a completely different career to their parents? I think it's a mixture of both, but mostly uh, 30 years to 40, 50. And a lot of them has been educated at schools like top schools, top universities in China, or they have uh, studied or worked or traveled abroad and started to fall in love with the taste of wine. Rather than in the past, Chinese people only, most Chinese people still now buy wines based on the name and the label, but we see more and more people starting to appreciate the quality and the taste of the wines. So it's, it's both, it's kind of partly curiosity and also partly there's some sort of um, status aspect to it as well. Yeah, curiosity and also, again, people love to uh, have qualifications in China because we have, we have to go through the college entry exam uh, to uh, getting to better universities in China. So for most people up to 18 years old in China, we fight for getting higher grades in the exam. So we have an exam and qualification culture over here. So why education fit into, fits into uh, that kind of context. But I mean, when people taste the wines, obviously you're in the business and, and members of the public are members of the public. Are members of the public as fascinated by the geeky side of wine, you know, the, uh, the analysis, the, the acidity, the tannins, or they just, as you say, sort of aspirational um, hobby? Yeah. So I think not many people are on the geeky side. And that's what I've seen in the U.S. as well, because I do see a discrepancy between the true geeky academic world and the uh, commercial world. But UC Davis has done well because they have to help wineries. They talk to industry people and all the professors I know at UC Davis, they have their own good palate and they love the commercial side. But, but of course, they are very, extremely professional at their academic research side. I mean, obviously, you, you spent time in Davis, in, at Davis. How well advanced is China uh, in terms of its own research on vine varieties and all the rest of it? Yeah, my personal feeling is that for the wine field, of course, we have a lot of different fields, right? Chemistry, bio, uh, microbiology, all that. But most research we share around the world. So UC Davis, Adelaide, Bordeaux, Geisenheim, everywhere we know the up-to-date information. So in China, we have uh, uh, my university, China Agricultural University, and some other university, they do wine research and they have all this information. Um, the thing is the focus is very different. For example, just as we talked about the uh, special growing conditions in China, people focus more on the uh, cold condition viticulture, uh, especially winter vine burial under earth, those kind of situations. So we do more research on that. What about things like organics and natural wine? Is that is that those sort of trends? Are people aware of those kind of trend, trends in China from the outside? And, and, and what about being inside China? Yeah, so it's very interesting to think about that because for viticulture, 
people had even had no chance to think about organic biodynamic farming and viticulture. The reason is that it's so challenging to grow uh, Vitis vinifera grapes in China. We have to violently uh, push down the vines and bury them over winter. And when we dig them out, uh, <laughs> uh, we break all the buds. We, uh, the survival rate is not that high, although it's improving nowadays. So people don't think about that for viticulture, for vinifera grapes. But it's interesting that uh, Chinese traditional farming and still the philosophy for farming in China nowadays, they are basically biodynamic because Rudolf Steiner's philosophy is almost the same as the China's conventional <laughs> agricultural farming in the past. We follow the lunar calendar. We think about the five elements. We think about yin and yang. We think about all those kind of things. So for agriculture in China, not in commercial scale now, nowadays, but in terms of philosophy, people understand that part. So for natural wine, it's even more interesting because we rarely produce natural wine in China due to the conditions. There are only like two people I know who perform small scale of natural wine um, production. But for what natural wine drinking culture, there's a huge boom in first-tier cities in China, like in Beijing and in Shanghai, because those people want to follow this kind of trend and lifestyle, and the younger generations, they try to drink something fun and interesting. And lots of people in urban areas, they drink natural wine. Interesting. I mean, do you think, I mean, in terms of, uh, I always think with biodynamic, organic, and natural wines, they have that lovely salinity to them. And does that suit the Chinese palate and Chinese cuisine? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because what I see is that natural wine drinkers are not wine drinkers in China. They are more of a beer drinkers or those kind of products uh, drinkers in China because natural wine fits in the profile, not in a traditional wine term. So the people who pursue these kind of trendy natural wine fashion, they love to drink IPA. They love to drink natural wine. And sometimes we know that certain natural wines have some bratty nose. And for beer drinkers, they are very used to that kind of taste. But say if a person drinks the so-called correct taste of Chardonnay all the time, they may not be um, natural wine drinkers. <laughs> Really interesting. It's interesting about the, uh, about the the motives. So let's talk about a little bit about more about China. What is what is it when we hear about um, Chinese cities? What what is a first tier city, and does that matter if you're trying to sell wine to China? It does matter. A uh, first tier city is mainly uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. Those are uh, population wise, economic wise, uh, they are the most developed city. And in those cities, you can truly sell the wines by the taste, by the context, by the culture, because people treat these products as being more sophisticated in their lifestyle. But as you move on to other tiers, like second tier or third tier, fourth tier, they have the habit of drinking wines by the brand because it's more about consuming alcohol. 
consuming the name of the wine rather than consuming the taste of the wine. And that is also because it's heavily influenced by the Chinese Baijiu culture. Baijiu is our national drink and it's usually above 40%, 50% alcohol by volume. And people drink those for getting boosted up, <laughs> getting uh, very happy. And people make business deals and people make friends using purely alcohol and strong taste. So those kind of culture is more, how to say, is still very strong in those kind of fourth tier cities, third tier cities in China. Uh, so people are not willing to try something that is more of a foreign product as compared to first tier cities like Beijing and Shanghai. But do you think that will that will change with the younger generation coming through? I mean, you know, globally, our, the generation following us have, have changed um, their their preferences in terms of um, getting boozed up, as you say. Do you think that could be the case in China, drinking less but better? Definitely, but it's going to be a very slow progress. As I said, the Baijiu is the China's national drink. So there's no way that the government, the market, will allow wine to become the major cultural drink in China. It's not a Chinese national drink anyway. So we will see wine as always a more interesting product in the market, but it will never become the scale of it. Just, just look at like vodka to certain countries like Poland and whiskey to Scotland. And in China, Baijiu is still going to be the most important drink, wine will have a more sophisticated market, but very slowly. And in terms of wine education, what impact um, will that have? And what are the general trends anyway uh, in wine education um, in China at the moment? And has that been impacted by by the um, COVID situation? So wine education is still going to be... the qualification-based wine education will be the most important part because people do these kind of things for qualifications, for certificates in China. But we see more and more people wanting to learn something more than just WCT, these kind of qualifications. Uh, We started to open more fun courses uh, with themed courses such as oh let's uh, taste some volcanic wines let's taste some greek wines and let's have a class on sake that i just did yesterday so people want these kind of interesting things because again for the people who are really interested in the taste and the culture of the wines they appreciate the context behind it they appreciate they want to try a diversity of styles they just they don't want to drink the wine just for the sake of qualifications or for the sake of the alcohol. And COVID really changed things a little bit in terms of there are there is an increasing number of uh, wine courses we do online. And we have these kind of packaging company who can package wines in smaller formats, like a hundred 25 milliliters per bottle and send to students and do these kind of cloud tasting, uh, virtual tasting. But since things are pretty controlled over here, COVID cases are almost non-existent in certain cities in China. So people 
starting to come out again and start to drink together again. Because in Chinese culture, we truly drink wines to share conversation with others. We do not drink wine just for, let's say, uh, for education or purely for uh, study. I mean, in terms of um, in terms of the economy and the impact on wine on the brinkmanship, you know, the China America relations, which have been a bit complex uh, recently. What sort of impact is that having uh, on um, on the, the wine industry in China, the wine consumption, the commercial side? Yeah, and well, also Australia has trouble now. <laughs> Australian wines uh, uh, are being held at the customs uh, at the moment in China, and there are, there are trade wars and uh, anti-dumping policies happening in between China and Australia. But what I see is that for large volume bulk wines, they definitely have uh, they have no hope because of the tariff, because of the tax. But for premium wines, premium quality and premium price wines, people still want to drink them. So people still drink lots of Penfold Grange. People still drink lots of uh, Screaming Eagle and Opus One in China. People want to get those kind of products. So on the premium side, still, I don't think there's a huge impact. Of course, the, the cheaper, the better. But the bulk wines, the large volume side, no hope. So okay, so there's a, a bit of a problem with um, physical um, bottles getting into China. What about the uh, on the education side, the flow of um, ideas and knowledge between, say, Davis and China? Is that still ongoing? Though is that okay? Those relationships. It's hard to tell because, first of all, if you look at the uh, inexpensive bulk wines in China, most are Changyu and Great Wall, which are national brands. And they are produced in Shandong province and from some other uh, provinces in terms of the grape source. And for the true bulk wines like Yellowtail brands uh, and White Zinfandel, those brands, they do sell. But we rarely have a huge consumption for those kind of wines. It's not like in America, White Zinfandel still sells like crazy. Yellowtail still sells in. They sell in China for a large volume, but recently the consumption, the sales seem to go down a little bit or go stagnant a little bit because we do not. Again, we do not have the culture of, hey, we're gonna drink wine and we're gonna just drink wine like water. No, we do not have that. If we drink inexpensive drinks, we drink Coke or beer or certain Chinese baijiu. What about um, we'll get we'll finish on um, your impressions of Italy. Um, do you come to Italy often? Uh, where are your favorite places, your favorite dishes, and your favorite wines? Okay, so my favorite place in Italy would be Chianti Classico because I the first time I went to Italy in two thousand thirteen, I was in Chianti Classico. And my favorite dish, of course, is the bistecca, the friandina. And my favorite one would be any nice Chianti Classico or Brunello or Sangiovese-based wines that pairs well with the, the steak. Are you a traditionalist? Do you prefer 100% Sangiovese um, in your Chianti Classico, or do you not mind having um, other grapes in there as well, international grapes? So before I went to uh, Chianti Classico, my f- more favorable style would be 
fruitier, more international style, maybe have some international grapes blended in. But after I've been there, my palate changed. So I prefer more structured, more local Sanjiovese-based, interesting profile, more structured, go with the food well, those kind of profile. Any particular white wines from Italy that you love? So I love Vermentino, not, in, not only because it tastes good to me, but also I've been thinking about one thing is that I somehow lived in Texas for a while uh, as well. And in Texas, I went to those kind of wine countries. In growing seasons, it's kind of hot and humid. And Vermentino shows really well over there in Texas hill countries, those kind of AVAs. Then when I see some of the conditions in China, not in, not in winter, but in growing seasons, like in summer towards autumn, it's also pretty hot and it's so rainy. It's not a Mediterranean climate at all. So I've been thinking if Vermentino can perform well in China. But so far, I've talked to the viticulturists over here. Nobody imported any Vermentino um, uh, plants from any of the for, uh, overseas nurseries into China yet. I mean, if you could bring in some varieties and just say they would magically grow in uh, in your back garden in China um, and you could plant a little vineyard, um, what, what would be the great varieties you'd stick in there apart from the Vermentino that you just mentioned? All the southern Italy, southern Portugal, Greek varieties. <laughs> really? Yeah. Go on, why, just, there must be there's some cultural reason there as well as taste. Come on, just explain that to us. Uh, I think it's more viticultural-wise. I just think those grapes are more resistant to those kind of, um, how to say, challenging environment. Uh, for example, Arianico grow pretty well in certain regions in China. And people make some beautiful examples, not the Taurasi, more structured, um, more full body example, but they made Ayanico into a almost Beaujolais crew-like examples, which I found interesting. And the flavors are pretty charming and they can grow it well as compared to certain varieties like Cabernet or those kind of Bordeaux Burgundy varieties. Okay, interesting. And so you're very pragmatic um, in your in your answer. It's a, it's a good uh, it's a good answer. I just want to say thanks to you, Gus Chu. I hope I got that right. Um, very entertaining uh, chat we've had. I think I really enjoyed it, and um, obviously you're a very very sparky kind of person and um, with a lot of knowledge and uh, well travelled. And, and your curiosity has really paid off. I think, and um, you've got a great future. You've already had a great career, but you've got a great Great career ahead of you, um, and I hope we can I hope we can speak again, and hope we can meet sometime in uh, in either in China or in, in Tuscany. All right, take care. Sure, thank you, Monty. No worries. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Cheers. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.